God, just, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful it is and how much it calls us to something better than the life that we uh, live in this world or that we understand in this world. And God, I just ask that we would lean on your understanding and that we would trust you. And I ask that we would understand the, the teachings uh, in your word this morning. Uh, I ask that I would communicate it effectively and that uh, everybody here would, would understand it clearly and, and understand how to apply it to their lives uh, so that we can be closer to you and closer to your people. It's, uh, it's in your name I pray, amen. Okay, so um, it's my last week uh, preaching about the family of God. Um, if you guys weren't here in the, the previous weeks, I basically have been building up to this week. And this week I want to talk more about what it means for us uh, as a congregation of the church to be uh, a real family. And I want to talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm going to, I guess, take a, a more a teaching uh, approach this morning instead of a, a preaching approach. So I'm going to try to explain things uh, and give, um, give our cultural context and contrast that with what the Bible teaches to try to challenge us to really live differently. Um, so to kind of kick off, I, I want us to think about how we view uh, things that aren't necessarily uh, that are big in Christian Western culture, but aren't necessarily the same emphasis or, uh, or even correct, uh, biblically speaking. So I have a, a few examples here that I think are pretty common that, that I grew up with. Uh, and the first one here is uh, we have a tendency to talk about our, Jesus as our personal Savior. And in some senses, this is correct. He, he does save each one of us personally, and it's personal in the sense that it's intimate. Um, but the way that we emphasize it uh, is, is we emphasize each one of, of us having just a personal relationship with God. But the, the term personal Savior is, is never used in the New Testament. Uh, there are phrases like uh, Savior of the world, uh, Savior of the church, these kinds of phrases, but never that Jesus is just your personal Savior. And so this is one example of how uh, what we uh, would call individualism creeps into the way that we view our, our outlook and, and the way we interpret Scripture. Another is we ask questions like, uh, or we view church more as an as a activity center sometimes, meant to help us. Um, and serve us instead of seeing the church as us. And we, we ask questions like, what church do you go to? And that betrays our misunderstanding of what church is. Uh, and, and we say, or we say, what, what, what church are you part of? But really, we should be asking questions like, where do you congregate with the church? I know it's a little more complicated. <laughs> But uh, that is the, the right way to, to view it. And, and this may just seem like semantics, but I think it really does play out in the way that we, we then live and the way that we treat our money, the way that we treat people uh, that are in other congregations of the church. We treat them like they're in a completely different group, that they're totally separate from us. And... 
And so we don't feel this deep connection to them just as believers. And when they're telling us about their church, we're not excited enough uh, about what is going on in their congregation uh, because we're, we're not viewing them really as part of our family and our group. Um, and, and so we think of our loyalties uh, more in a, in a very local sense but not in a, in a global sense. Um, and, and we have a tendency to view ourselves very independently from one another. Uh, but the biblical teaching is more a view of interdependence. So my future is interrelated with your future eternally. And my honor and your honor, uh, my welfare and your fa- welfare is connected. It's not completely separate. So if uh, I fall in some big way or somebody in our congregation falls in some big way, um, you know, the proper reaction to that is, would be the same if you had a family member uh, that gets in trouble in some way and you, you would feel some ownership in that situation. My brother or my sister you know, maybe I maybe got in trouble uh, selling drugs and they're going to go to prison. Um, you would feel uh, some responsibility and, and not just anger, which could be valid uh, in that situation, but also a real sense of sadness uh, and a real sense of trying to or wanting to restore uh, not just them, but, but the family and understand what, what went wrong in our family that this, that this happened. Uh, and in church, I definitely think we can do a, a lot better job of taking responsibility for one another. And it's not about just confronting one another, because confrontation without intimacy is, is abuse. Uh, but confrontation within intimate relationship is helpful. If you, if you care about me and love, love me, and you're confronting me, that's, that's a great uh, I, I'm going to trust what you're saying, and what you're saying is going to be appropriate because you care. But if, if you don't, or if you're, if you're too independent from me and you don't know me and you're coming to confront me, that's not really helpful. You don't know me, and you don't really care, so you're probably not going to be appropriate in the way you go about it. Um, so this is our fourth week on the family of God, and I, I tried to use some examples that I, that I thought would resonate with all of us, um, and I'm just as guilty as, as everybody else. Last night, I was hanging out with the Jacksons with their family, and I told them that I was going to teach this, and I told them about how to view church, and then we talked about which churches we go to, <laughs> and I totally forgot, <laughs> and so it's not, it's not easy. It's ingrained in the way that I think, uh, and, and the reality is it's, it is more than just semantics. I do sometimes think of them as a totally separate group. Um, and it's hard for me, even in the middle of teaching about it for a month, uh, to view it correctly in my mind. And, and so I, I do want to confront us strongly, but I, I don't want to act like I'm, I'm somehow perfect in these areas. I'm not. Um. So up until now, I've really been trying to establish the sort of the theological basis for the fact that we're a family and that uh, we're a family uh, globally uh, among the church. And we really are assembling with a local group within the, the family of God. 
And in order to do that, I, I argued uh, that that God is relational and the gospel is relational in nature, that God relates to us in, in family terms or family relations, and that he commands us to do the same. And today, what I'm going to argue uh, or seek to prove that Scripture says is that uh, the gospel claims complete allegiance to God and his people, total allegiance to God and his people, uh, and that we're an intimate team or as the Bible sometimes calls us, a holy nation set apart for God uh, and in some ways for each other as well. Our passage today is going to be Mark 10, uh, verses 28 to 31. And just to give you a little bit of context of the, the text, where we're at in Mark uh, today, the, the themes in this area of Mark are emphasizing uh, the radical nature of the gospel and that, it, that repentance is a, is a radical thing. It's not something uh, small. It's not something you incorporate into your life uh, without making major changes. It's a, it's a big transformational thing. Mark is also emphasizing the primacy of God, that God is the only authority, uh, that there is one God, and that, that he's, he's the only authority in this world. Uh, and then another theme that's interwoven throughout is this idea that in God's kingdom, uh, our worth is not based on our role or our function, but on our hearts and our service to one another. So whether you're doing something small or great in, in the world's eyes is irrelevant uh, to, to who is great in God's eyes. And then uh, throughout this, there's, or before and uh, around this passage, there's two instances where, where Mark seemingly randomly mentions that, that Jesus is giving sight to, to blind people in the physical world. And he does this because what he's stating is that what, what Jesus is doing in the physical world, he's also doing through his teachings to us in the spiritual world. So he's, he's giving us teachings that are meant to show us that we're blind in the way that we're viewing things and that we need to open our eyes to what he's saying. So that's the context of this passage. So let's, let's read it real quick. Uh, it's Mark 10, chap or chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. And it starts, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. To understand the, how it was interpreted to them, we need to understand our cultural context and their cultural context. And so I'm going to introduce two terms that, that you guys may be aware of or may not be aware of. Um, so we live in an individualistic culture. Uh, and so I've put the definition of individualism up here. And this is very much a, an American ideal. So individualism is a moral or political or social outlook that stresses human independence and the importance of individual self-reliance and liberty. An example of this would be, for instance, we raise our children 
to operate independently of us. We define when we have a successful adult, that is somebody who doesn't, who no longer needs help. That is very much an American way of viewing uh, adulthood and of viewing sort of a healthy individual. It's very individualistic in nature. Um, and the culture in which this passage is being uh, shared is more of a collectivist culture. And collectivism is the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. So in, in their culture, the collectivism looked like uh, the group that everybody was primarily loyal to was the family. And it was your blood relatives. And, and so when you uh, were, for instance, you were raised as a child not to be independent of your family and to no longer need help from your family, but you were raised as a child to one day be able to be an inter interdependent contributor to your family. And so families were very intimate and they were very team oriented. Uh, and that's why widows and orphans who truly were uh, alone and didn't have any other family to take care of them were very vulnerable in that society. Uh, and they did not have the technology that we have today to help out. I mean, one of the reasons why we can be so individualistic is because physically we can survive. Uh, we think on our own. We're actually very interdependent. You know, I got here in a car today. I didn't actually build that car. Uh, you know, I rely on a lot of other people. Um, but we, we feel like we're independent. And, and they would not have been able to get anywhere without help from the community. Uh, and that was very much built on uh, the family structure. So um, loyalty to the family, uh, which I'll define loyalty as kind of protecting the honor uh, and also serving the welfare of the family, uh, was paramount for them. And um, what I want to prove today is that actually this passage confronts both our view, our individualistic view, and their collectivist view. Uh, and it's difficult for, for both of us. So let's start verse by verse and talk through this passage. So starting with verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So in, in individualism, the emphasis is on self, self-reliance. I'm my own master. And this first verse confronts our individualistic attitude because Peter left everything to follow God, to follow Jesus alone. And so the only individual uh, that the gospel affirms as being our master or as being the master is not you and not me of ourselves, but it is God. And so in that way, the gospel is individualistic, but it's Gospel individualism is different than American individualism or worldly individualism. It puts God where we want to put ourselves. And so how radical is this individualism or this individualistic outlook supposed to be? And so let's go into verse 29, and this would have confronted both their culture and our culture. And it says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. So Jesus basically mentions anything and everything related to you 
you may have to leave or you may have to go against for the gospel. And he's affirming that idea. So how radical does it need to be? Basically, in every category, it, it, our individual focus, the one that we serve, is only God. And a couple other verses to kind of show the full, um, or the strength of how strong Jesus teaches this throughout his ministry. I'm going to go to Matthew 6, 24, just the f- first part of the verse. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then in Luke 14, 26 and 27, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's the first thing. I didn't say this. This is what it says in Scripture. Jesus said this. Um, And I want to talk about this word hate because it it obviously is a controversial word. Uh, And it seems contrary to all the emphasis on Scripture to love both uh, others and to care for them, uh, even our enemies we are to love. So how can we reconcile these two seemingly opposed ideas? And it's important to understand that the word hate could also be translated as uh, forsake or go against. And the context that, or, or the explanation that Jesus gives us in verse 29 of our passage is that uh, the, the, the caveat to where we are supposed to forsake all these other things is for his sake or for the gospel. And so the way to understand it is in all contexts that you can love, and you can be loyal to and be good to uh, all of these relationships and yourself, that's fine. And the gospel affirms that throughout. But in any, in any specific point where any of those relationships or yourself or your possessions in any way are contrary to God and the gospel, you are to forsake so strongly that this same word could be translated validly as hate. And so it's not like, a, you know, there are different words to communicate different, um, the same thing sometimes, and some of those words can be stronger or weaker. This is, a, this is the most strong word that Jesus could have used or that the authors could have uh, written. To, uh, to demonstrate how strongly we're supposed to folk or forsake anything that goes against God or the gospel. Um, and so that's our guide when we're in this world of how do we make a decision of uh, what to affirm and what not to affirm. And, and it's obvious this is not easy stuff. And so the individualistic nature of the gospel that puts God as master of, of everything is total uh, and is, is strong uh, and radical. So I want to uh, contrast worldly individualism and gospel individualism. So I've made a little chart, and I've kind of already explained, like, worldly individualism puts us as the master of ourselves 
And gospel individualism puts God as the only individual master of every one of us. And you can see the values of worldly individualism very much reflect American culture. It's all about, I'm in charge, my authority, you can't tell me what to do. Uh, our concern is to protect our, our autonomy, our freedom to follow our desires and what we want, uh, and, um, and to be ourselves. It's about finding yourself is a big emphasis in our culture. And it, it very much is about fame or getting attention or praise uh, and glorifying ourselves. Um, but you'll notice that gospel individualism is opposite in each category. And God's authority versus my authority, I think we emphasize that well in the church. We understand that well. I think uh, sometimes the idea of freedom in Scripture is misunderstood. Uh, freedom is a term that is used in Scripture, but the context in Scripture is that God is setting us free from the bondage to ourselves uh, and free from our desires and um, free from the bondage of sin. He's not setting us free to follow our desires. That would be, that would be self-destructive, uh, according to the gospel. Uh, and that is, I think, something that is a little easier for us sometimes to misunderstand when we, when we read Scripture. And then the final thing is God's praise then becomes the natural outflow of viewing it correctly. Of course, we would want to praise God for setting us free from something that was so destructive to us. Uh, and, and faith is about trusting in God's authority, lean, leaning not our, on our own understanding, but on his, even when it doesn't make sense to us. So that's the, the first part of our passage, really, I think, confronts us very strongly. So moving down into the next part um, of what I'm going to call gospel collectivism, uh, in verse 30, it reads, continuing from the, the last verse, Who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and last first. So Jesus does not affirm the idea that the gospel is is radical in that it completely severs all ties to this world. He's actually saying the complete opposite, that the gospel creates new ties that are now much stronger uh, and much more fundamental and, and important than our previous ties, uh, but they're, they're equally important. So he's affirming a collectivist view of, of, um, of reality He's just not affirming their original view, their loyalty to their blood family. He's affirming that same loyalty and that same drastic uh, view of protecting the group and serving the group, but, but for God's family and for, for the church, the global church. And he's saying that this family is in force now. It's not just a future thing. He, he specifically says in this life and in the, the life to come. Uh, and this, for them, would have been equally as difficult as it is for us, the, the other part about confronting individualism. 
for them, their loyalty to their family was not just um, not just a a loyalty about uh, caring and and loving and feeling like your identity was wrapped up. It also was a survival need, and it was very scary to leave that security and trust in this new group. But that's the call. That's what Jesus is saying to them. So this was not an easy message for them in their vulnerable position in society. And so I want to show, I'm borrowing this from a a gentleman named Joseph Hellerman, uh, and he suggests uh, sort of a new way that we should maybe think about our relationships. Um, And so we in traditional Western Christian relationship or Christian culture uh, view our relationship priorities, and you may have heard this growing up in church, is God, family, church, uh, others. And he suggests that a, a better way to view it is God's family is our primary priority. And then my family uh, responsibilities and relationships. And then finally, all others. And so this does not say or claim that we have uh, no responsibilities in the world. We absolutely do. We are meant to be contributors to society, helpful and loving to everybody. However, there is an an exclusivity in any family group that should exist in, in the church. And that exclusivity is about a, sort of an, an added level of intimacy and loyalty um, and, and a desire to protect and honor um, one another, not just in this congregation, but also in any other congregation of believers. And I, uh, you know, I don't want to say this is like, we can't criticize this or maybe tweak it a little bit, but I, I do want to challenge us to just think about the way we think and to, uh, to consider this is potentially a new way to frame how we approach our relationships. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, how rad- radical should gospel collectivism be or our, our recognition of the family. And how much of this was just kind of a, a general teaching versus something that we should put into practice. So I'm going to go to uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 32, and then I'm going to skip to 34 through 35. So it says, starting in 32, Now the full member or full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. The tendency is to try to over-explain this passage. Uh, and give a lot of caveats of, well, it needs a lot of qualifiers, of we, we can't really live this out. What I want to show, I'm not, there are some qualifiers that are valid to, to this way of thinking. But before we get there, I want us to notice how radical uh, they were living. And it's, it's no less radical for them than it would be for us. It's no less difficult for them than it would be for us. Um, and... We have in in our passage the teaching, and we have in their passage the application, or this this next passage, the application. 
uh, and we see total alignment. They did exactly what was being taught. There's no difference at all in the way the early church practiced this teaching. Uh, and so there's, there's alignment between uh, practice and theory. And um, so, you know, to talk about our church, honestly, as far as the, or our, sorry, our congregation, <laughs> uh, it's difficult. Um, you know, I can testify that as far as the congregations I have been a part of, there's some great things in our church that I think are unique. Uh, I have been in a situation where I've been between different locations, and several of you, oftentimes without me asking, uh, have opened up your homes to me um, and helped me in other ways when I was not able to be here. And that is a great testament to, to great application in a very appropriate manner. Um, and so I want to affirm that we're not like completely way off on living some of these out, some of these things out. Uh, however, at the same time, I, I do think that uh, the radical nature of these teachings does challenge us to go further than we do. Um, and um, so our, the focus on this passage was, was in the context of uh, belongings, but um, and it's not to mean that there cannot be different levels of wealth among the church. That absolutely existed as well in the early church. And they leveraged that for the good of the church. Oftentimes they met in the homes of more wealthier individuals because they had greater resources. And it, it made sense to have that within the church community so that they could operate well together. And so I'm not in any way advising that we need to, to make everybody completely equal in all ways. I think that's impractical and impossible. Um, but, but I absolutely believe there should never be somebody in need in this church, in legitimate need in this church, uh, or in this congregation, sorry. Uh, and, and, and even in other churches, or other congregations, God's hard, um, you know, we do have a responsibility to help them as well. We need to identify our surplus and whatever that may be and try to help with anybody that has a need area. But this solidarity goes beyond giving of our belongings. The emphasis in our passage absolutely includes belongings and includes lands and homes, uh, but it also, in, in, you'll notice, speaks of a lot of different relationships. And so Jesus does not state that uh, we're to basically negate all these previous uh, relationships and now have some kind of like uniform relationship. Uh, no, he affirms different roles. He lists uh, brothers, sisters, mothers. And so we all play different roles in the community. And, and we do have a, a strong responsibility to one another, not just positionally, because there's no argument, uh, I think, in Western Christianity, like normal teaching, that positionally we re relate to each other as a family. But the emphasis in this passage is also relationally, that we actually consider ourselves family and treat each other as family. And, and just like any family, you know, uh, those that are older 
des deserve to be treated in a different way and need to be treated in a different way. Uh, they are to be the, the wise counsel. They have more experience. Um, and those that are younger are, are not to be given too much responsibility before they're ready. Uh, they are to be uh, permitted and allowed to be children. Uh, and not be, we're not to put too much pressure on a child. Uh, we're to allow people to be what they are and, uh, and relate to one another in healthy ways within the church. In the same way that a healthy family uh, does that. And um, so the next, a couple other things that, that Jesus is showing, what, what he's stating here, uh, when he says that we're going to receive a hundredfold uh, of what we originally had, even though this is a really drastic and radical and difficult teaching, uh, he, is, he is emphasizing that it's a good thing, that it, this is a blessing that he is giving to us not something that he's taking away from us. He's giving us something greater than what we could have had. And he's also affirming that it's going to be difficult. He mentions that this will come with persecutions. If we live this radically, it's going to go against the grain. When, if we're going to confront worldly, worldly individualism, which I would think is going to be more difficult for us, um, or if we're going to confront some of the loyalties with our family or with our friends and put priority with our church relationships, uh, that's, that's going to be hard. People are not going to react uh, always um, in, a, in a welcoming way. And so uh, Jesus is affirming that it's going to be difficult, and he's preparing us for that. And if we're not ever facing that, I think uh, the assumption or the question needs to be, are we living radically enough? Um, and in the final part of the passage, and I really want to emphasize this, the reason why I believe he says that but many who are first will be last and last first, right after this passage is when James and John asked to be at the right and left hand of God in the, in the future kingdom. And it's when Jesus uh, confronts very strongly that the world looks at worth incorrectly. We oftentimes assign value to people based on their role, and we view roles with power as more important and more valuable, and we ascribe that same value that we ascribe to the role to the person in it. And, and Jesus could not be more uh, clear in basically calling out that that is just not the way God sees it. Uh, the one that serves the most, uh, or the one he actually says who is slave to everybody, is the greatest among you. And so uh, whether you're standing in front of everybody teaching like I am right now, or, or you're like Heath or Kurt or Hiro and you're, you're in a leadership role um, within this church, or whether you're teaching in, in Bridge Kids, uh, or whether you're setting up beforehand or cleaning one of the toilets uh, when it got dirty. Um, the only thing that really gives us worth eternally is our hearts. It's not based on what, what society says about us. Um, and it's definitely not based on any role or function that we perform. It's, it's the heart in which we perform it that really matters to God. 
So I want to contrast um, worldly collectivism and gospel collectivism. So you'll notice that in individualism, I did kind of had, had to reorient some of the speaking about, about worldly individualism, um, but I don't really have to do that with collectivism because the gospel affirms collectivist ideals. It just changes the focus, the group. So worldly collectivism uh, considers duty or responsibility to the group as, as very important and cooperation or peace within the group so think of uh, Paul when he's confronting uh, the Corinthians because they're, they're suing one another in public courts. And think about how he, said, or he, how he confronts them. He says to them, it would be better for you to be wronged by your brother than to go f- publicly and basically shame the church by airing your dirty laundry for all the world to see and fighting with your brother in a public forum. That is very much a family-like ancient world view of how a family would react in that situation. It would have been extremely dishonorable for two brothers in the same family to publicly fight. And uh, in some of the research I was reading, it was amazing how many stories there are of that, where even in a situation where in the ancient world, Maybe there was a, a person that was doing something that was condemned by society. If their brother attacked them for it, the society viewed both that person doing the bad behavior as incorrect and their family for confronting them publicly, which is very different than our way of looking at it. But it's, it's because the way they viewed it is that brother needs to go talk to his brother needs to confront him privately, and if not, he still needs to defend the honor of his family because their honor is interrelated, and so he's got to do everything he can to get his brother to be in line, um, but also do what he can to, to protect the overall family name. And uh, what's interesting is the gospel does nothing to confront that idea it just applies it to the church instead of the, the blood r- relationships in their culture. Um, so, you know, when we have conflicts in the church or uh, let's say we've got uh, a family in the church and a child gets in uh, trouble and goes to juvenile detention, you know, um, sometimes our reaction can be, I can't believe that happened or they let that happen. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, we can ostracize those people. Uh, but if we think of them as part of the same family as us, and we see our uh, honor and their honor interrelated, just like if your child gets in trouble, your reaction should be, if you're a healthy parent, to try to restore your child and, and heal the situation. Uh, it's, it should be the same in the church. And... Uh, for those of you that have grown up in the church, I'm sure you can think of examples where churches or congregations um, don't, don't typically handle those situations very well. And the more public the situation, the more we are prone to distance ourselves from those people. Um, but the reality is um, 
when one of our, our brothers or sisters uh, is being dishonored, um, our reaction needs to be to try to restore them because there's an aspect of all of us being dishonored in that moment. Uh, and when, if we dishonor uh, somebody else in the church, we also dishonor ourselves and disrespect ourselves because we are interrelated. That's what I believe this teaching is emphasizing. So, um, basically, to wrap up our four weeks on the family of God, um, you know, one of the reasons why I'm, I am here, part of this congregation, is because I, I believe there is a lot of intimacy uh, and there is a lot of desire for healthy intimacy in our congregation. I also think we have to be realistic about uh, we all come with a lot of baggage, and it's not easy to actually live that out. I, uh, I struggle to call you guys my brothers and sisters because it feels weird. Um, and that is, you know, uh, I don't need to struggle with that. It would be better if it was easy. Um, but that's just the reality of, of where we're at. But I don't think we can avoid that basically Scripture presents the gospel as a radical reorienting of, of all of our relationships and the way that we value things towards God and his people. And, and so when we think about repentance, the reason why I think that if we view ourselves independently, we're not just misunderstanding the way we're supposed to treat other people in the church, but we're actually misunderstanding the gospel because there is a, a relational and a, a group aspect to living out the gospel. Part of the good news is we're united. We're together. And, um, and so I want to challenge us to really try to live that out. So a couple ways that we can apply this. The first one I think is easy is it, we we can work on the way that we talk about church and we talk about uh, communing with and spending time with other believers. Um, and we can uh, emphasize that we are family. We can speak of each other in family terms. Um, and then we can work on trying to see people in other, other congregations as also part of our church. Uh, and the good of those congregations uh, should be a, a motive in our hearts. Um, the next way we can apply this is I think we need to sit down and spend some time, and I'd recommend because of the emphasis of this whole series on doing this together, but I'd recommend doing this together but, but thinking individually as far as how can I give, serve, and love the eternal family of God in its eternal, uh, or considering its eternal welfare uh, in more meaningful ways? Um, so I, I think it would be a good exercise to write down specific, way, or specific areas where we have surplus. And don't just think of financial or physical surplus, like I have eight cars or something. I don't, but, you know, if I did, uh, I would need to think about that's too many cars for, I can't drive eight cars in one time. But, um, you know, how could I leverage that for, uh, for God's kingdom? But also think about your time. 
think about any surplus time that you have and how, how can you use that to commune with uh, and benefit the family. And, and also think about your abilities. How can you leverage uh, your abilities to help the church and, and to, um, to commune with us? Uh, and then I, I challenge you guys to talk that through with other people in the church because uh, there's probably going to be opportunities that you don't see and, and you're not meant to see without help from other people. And, and then I, I want to challenge us, the last application is just when we think of all of our resources, whether it be time, whether it be our hearts, whether it be our possessions, uh, just to always think of them as resources that have a much greater purpose than anything that is connected to this world. And so Christ is calling us to, in many ways, sacrifice our, our previous way of viewing everything. Uh, but he's really not asking us to sacrifice that much because he's giving purpose to things that otherwise would not have a great purpose. If, if we are just living to serve ourselves, that is not a great meaningful life. And Christ is calling us to view all of our resources, everything that we have, all of our wealth, time, and capabilities uh, as an opportunity, an opportunity to serve and commune and have fellowship uh, with God and with his people, and also to serve uh, the world and draw them into God uh, and into right relationship. And with all of that, you know, definitely we need to meet the physical needs uh, of people, but but the whole emphasis on this is on our spiritual family and on our spiritual relationships and in the way that we need to think of our things, or our resources with greater purpose, the emphasis is also more spiritually uh, because spiritual things are eternal and things of this world are not. That does not mean that we need to, to neglect physical needs. We absolutely need to and oftentimes need to reach those or meet those first, uh, but but our, our long-term goals is the, is the eternal spiritual health of, of our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and of those that don't believe of calling them into relationship with Christ and with us, a greater relationship with us. Let's pray. God, I, just, I thank you so much um, for how incredible the depth is of your teachings and how much it, it confronts me, and it, I think it confronts any culture and challenges us to something that is very difficult, but at the same time is incredibly special and worth it. And God, I just thank you for telling us over and over again how worth it it is to give ourselves to you and to give ourselves over to trusting you and leaning on your way of doing things and not at all... Uh, trusting any more in ourselves. Uh, God, we, we get ourselves into trouble. We get ourselves into messes. Um, our best ideas uh, lead to unhealthy things. And it is your word that sets us free. And God, I just ask that we would, we would fully appreciate and have faith and trust in you. And that we would First, be willing to give ourselves completely over to your way of doing things uh, and, 
and then that you would give us the strength to follow through and do it. And we just trust that you would you will transform us and change our communities uh, and both our our church family and our physical families and and really transform us into something great and um, and that we would just enjoy knowing you and a closeness with you um, that's greater than we could ever imagine on our own. It's in your name I pray. Amen.